Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. I, I know what I'm up against. It's a holiday weekend. You're sleepy. You're full. And I think most of you, your team lost yesterday. And, and so I, I, you should be like me. You should root for a team that is so bad that you just don't even care. My alma mater, Army. All right, well, let's get into it. Romans chapter 8, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab one. If you don't have one, I'd encourage you to use the Bible that's in the chair in front of you. And as always, that Bible's yours to keep. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift to you and use it and read it. If you, don't have a, if you just forgot yours today, I'd, I'd love for you to, to follow along in that Bible and uh, follow along with us as we finish up our series through the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. We've spent three months in just this chapter, and today we'll get to the glorious conclusion of Romans chapter 8. And as you're doing that, I just want to say what a joy it is to have Nick and Diana Cash with us this morning. Uh, we love you guys. We're very grateful for your ministry, and we're thankful that the Lord has you there ministering to those those folks and those people that ultimately, uh, not just the workers on the ship, but the people that you're ministering to, their, their greater need is, is far more than a surgery or a physical uh, help, but it is Jesus. And we thank, we're very thankful that God has you there to facilitate the, the spread of the gospel to all peoples everywhere. So praise God for that. Well, we have been working our way through this, this great chapter and this morning we come to the conclusion, verses 35 through 39. In just a moment, I'm going to read those verses, and then I'll give you a kind of the outline of how we're going to work through these, these beautiful words this morning. But before I do that, I want you to know ahead of time what my goals are for this morning. This morning we're going to look at a doctrinal truth about how once God makes a person a Christian... He guarantees that he will keep them a Christian, that they will persevere until the end. Now, sometimes, some people, maybe in our culture, sort of shy away from definitive doctrinal truths, and that is a mistake, I think. All of us have a doctrine, right? Maybe our doctrine is that doctrine's not important, but you realize that that's a doctrine, actually. It's a bad one, but it's a doctrine. And so, we want to be people that think deeply about what The Bible is saying to us as Christians and to to pull together the whole counsel of God's Word and to piece it together into truths that, that become bedrocks for us to stand on. So this morning, I want to encourage us to see and understand and cherish the conclusion of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8, which is this beautiful doctrine of the perseverance of God's people. When we understand it rightly, I think it is a source of gospel confidence for Christians in in a world that's filled with anxiety and brokenness. When it's understood wrongly, it can become a a very harmful thing, causing at times people to have false assurance or detracting from God's glory and salvation. And so this morning, I want us to stare at this truth 
And I want us to see it and stand on it and be compelled by it. And if you are, and I hope there are many, well, not many, but I certainly assume that there are some in this room that may not yet be trusting in Christ. Maybe you're visiting with a friend over the holidays. We're very grateful that you're here if you're not yet a Christian. I pray that today, even as we have sort of this family discussion about this great truth of the gospel, I pray that your heart would even be warmed and that God would stir your heart and that you would see Jesus and what God has done in Christ on the cross to save rebellious sinners for his glory and their joy and that God in his kindness might even cause that to happen in your life and bring you from death to life. So let me read. Let me read and let me pray and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. Romans chapter 8 verses 35 through 39. Friends, I say it all the time. These are magnificent words. The summit of the gospel in Romans 8. Paul writes, Romans 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul there is quoting from Psalm 44, verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Oh, Father, we come again so grateful for this beautiful chapter that we have been immersing ourselves in these past few months. And I pray once again this prayer that we have been praying in Romans 8. Lord, the things that we know not, we pray that you would teach us. The things that we have not and truly need, we pray that you would give us. And Lord, the things that we are not, we pray and know that it's only by your word and your spirit that you can make us. And we pray that you do this for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, for the salvation of those in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you my outline up front because I know you're nervous. I usually do it earlier and you're wondering, where are we going? So let me just give it to you right up front. Three points that we're going to work through. The first is we're just going to stare at the truth of verses 35 through 39. We're just going to stare at this truth and look at it and understand it, Lord willing. And secondly, we're going to look at and handle a couple objections possibly to this truth that we're going to, we're going to look at and and, and revel in from this passage. And then finally, 
we're going to make application to our lives. What does this mean? What is, in light of this great truth that God, once he makes a Christian, keeps Christians, what does this then compel us to do? So let's look at point number one there, the truth of what Paul is saying. To understand verses 35 through 39, we need to, we need to refresh our memory of the whole argument of Paul in Romans chapter 8 that we've been working through these past few weeks. He starts off in the first few verses reminding us, telling us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this doesn't just happen out of nowhere, but the way that the Lord justifies or saves or works this state of no condemnation in the life of a believer is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has Where we were sinful and fallen, Jesus has become a man. He is the pre-eternal, forever Son of God, not created, eternally existing. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when the fullness of time had come, Galatians says, Jesus, God the Son, came and took on human flesh. And where we as humans have all rebelled against God in some way, Jesus, as a man completely obeyed God perfectly in every way, fulfilling the requirements of God's holiness and his law. And at the beginning of Romans 8, it says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he, God the Father, condemned sinful flesh through Jesus' perfect life and by laying down Jesus as a sacrifice to bear the punishment that should have been ours for rebelling against God and his holiness. And because Jesus, the perfect God-man, has bore God's wrath and he's satisfied it, he's extinguished God's wrath against human sin and has risen in victory over sin, death in the grave, and all of its consequences, God's holiness, God's punishment, God's justice, God's wrath is satisfied through Jesus' work on the cross. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian, to trust in what Jesus has done in his perfect righteousness and not in our meager unrighteousness. And so God now says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he doesn't end there. He continues on. The next few verses, he talks about how this comes about by the Holy Spirit who adopts us. Not because of anything good in us, but because of the free grace of God the Father. He adopts us by his Holy Spirit. And he does more than just justify us. As glorious glorious as that is, he does more than just make us not condemned anymore for those who are in Christ. He adopts us as his children children and gives us his Holy Spirit to live within us. But then he continues to say and remind us in the middle part of Romans chapter 8 that this does not mean even though you are now no longer condemned if you're in Christ Jesus and you have God's spirit of adoption in you, the Holy Spirit that's adopted you into God's family, this does not mean, Paul continues, that we will be trouble free in this earth. In fact, he says that all creation And every person groans. This world is broken. Things are broken. And this is not out of God's control. Even that is part of God's mysterious, beautiful providence. In fact, Paul says in the midway through Romans that even God has subjected creation to this futility 
so that he might bring great glory to himself and eternal joy to his redeemed by saving them out of this brokenness. So we know that this life, even though we are no longer condemned and we have Christ, the Spirit of Christ in us, it does not mean that we will not face difficulty. And God doesn't leave us alone, but he gives us this Holy Spirit to pray for us even when we don't know what to pray for. And this Holy Spirit that's in us as we live out the rest of our life in this still broken, not yet fully redeemed world, his Holy Spirit groans within us and prays for us and intercedes for us on our behalf to the Father. And then we looked at the very summit of the mountain of Romans 8 where, God, where Paul concludes that God has worked all of this together for his glory and the good of his people. And he lays out for us this beautiful unbroken chain of salvation. And he says that God has foreknown you, he's foreloved you, And because he's foreloved you, he's predestined you. And because he's predestined you, he's called you. And because he's called you, he's justified you. And because he's justified you, he has glorified you, past tense, looking ahead to the future. In fact, he's saying that your future state, Christian, your future reality, your eternity, is so certain if you are in Christ that we can speak of it as being in the past tense. This unbreakable chain of our salvation. And then... In verse 31 through 34 that we've looked at these last few weeks, he refutes any threats or potential objections to God's purposes for his people, reminding us that if God has done all of this for his people, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died who rose again, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And that brings us to this now final step, this final conclusion of his argument where Paul is saying, if all of this is true for the Christian, that you're no longer condemned, that you are adopted into God's family, and that God in eternity past has loved you and guaranteed the the end of all things for you, which will be your glorification with him, and now he's refuting every charge against you because Jesus died, Jesus rose again, Jesus is at the right hand of God, and Jesus is interceding for you. He's now reminding us, He's putting steel in our spine and he's saying then what can wrestle you from the sovereign safe hand of God? That's his argument in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Let's look at it again. Verse 35. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Anything external? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, stock market, bad relationship, rebellious child, cancer, anything extra. No. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, even in death is his, is his point there. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life. So he goes from just external, horizontal, earthly things to cosmic powers. Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth. Anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is, at the end of this great chapter, wanting to put steel in our spine for the rest of our life in this broken world. In the context, we need to remember the the context of the first readers of this letter. This letter was written to Roman Christians who were, at this time, 80, 50, 80, 60, 80, 70 or so, about 30 or 40 years after Jesus had been crucified and risen again, are undergoing the beginnings of very severe persecution. In about a decade from the time that they received this letter, a man named Nero would become the emperor of Rome, and he would begin to to terrorize Christians. In fact, it's written of Nero that one of the things that he did is that he lit the streets of Rome with the burning flesh of Christians. And Paul is writing this letter to Christians, telling them that there's nothing. There's no power in this world. There's no external foe, human or spiritual. There's no emperor. There's no demon. There's no sin that still lurks in your heart that you're wrestling against that can separate you. Not even death itself can separate you from what is certain and sure that God will bring you safely home. That's Paul's argument. Then which brings us to this, what Christians have long held as this this beautiful doctrine of the perseverance or the security of God's people. Let's state it for you. Let's let's read a definition of this doctrine by a modern-day theologian that that I and the other pastors here highly respect. His name is Wayne Grudem. He's written a big, thick book called Systematic Theology. Don't be intimidated by it. We sell it in the Resource Center. It looks huge, but it is so well-written and so easy to read, and it's huge because it's just got a lot of stuff in it. That, that didn't make much sense, but you know what I'm talking about. That didn't help shed much more light on it. It's big just because it's very comprehensive. It just covers all of basically the major areas of doctrine in the Bible. It would be a wonderful resource for you. Every, every household in this church, I pray, would have a copy of this book and would, would let it be a resource to them to think about what the Bible says about particular areas of truth. This is what Wayne Grudem says about the doctrine of the perseverance. In other words, the con- fact that Christians will remain Christians to the end of their life if God has truly made them a Christian. It says this, the perseverance of the saints, meaning Christians, means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So let's look at that. He's saying that Christians that are truly trusting in God, that have been made Christians by God's grace, will remain Christians no matter what they face, even though they may stagger to the finish line. God will keep them, as we read from 1 Peter a while ago. And that those that do endure to the end or persevere to the end are the ones that have truly been been born again because there will be people that fall away and what do we say about those people and I think the Bible would point us in the direction that those people were never truly 
trusting in Christ. And we'll look at that more closely in a moment. This doctrine, I think, is all over the Scriptures. A few other New Testament passages that, that speak to this. John 6, Jesus speaking about His mission and what the Father has given Him to do. John 6, verse 38. Listen to these words from Christ. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on that last day. That's speaking of the people that God has given to Jesus, that Jesus has died for. He will lose none of His people. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. We read it earlier from John chapter 10. Paul read it in between a few songs. It's worth reading again. John 10, Jesus speaking again. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Nobody has a tighter, stronger grip than the Trinity, than God the Father. Nobody can beat Him in a wrestling match for your soul. Another ver- a few verses that speak to this. Let's just, just give us a taste of what the New Testament says about this. Ephesians 1, verse 13. We've looked at the Father and the Son and their work in this, this keeping of Christians. Look at the role of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God in eternity past for loves us. Jesus accomplishes our salvation on the cross. The Holy Spirit applies it to our life by opening our ears to hear the gospel and trust in Christ. And then he seals us for that final day when we will be fully and finally glorified. A verse that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Philippians 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, Paul writes to the Philippian church, that he who began a good work in you will, not might, but will, not probably, but will, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God starts, God is saying that he promises to finish. And did you catch that beautiful scripture that Reynolds read at the beginning from 1 Peter 3? Oh, I know I'm repeating some scriptures, but it's so good. It's worth hearing again. Come on. You will watch movies five or six, seven, eight times in a row. It won't kill you to hear the same verse read twice in one service. That's what I thought. All right. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. And by the way, all that's planned. It's not like, oh my gosh. I mean, we, we want us as a congregation to drill down on this beautiful truth so that we would stand on this and be more useful to God, which we'll get to in a second. First Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how did you become a Christian? 
Not because you decided to make yourself a little bit better or you had a bad go of it for the past 10 years and so you needed to clean yourself up and you wanted to do better. No, God, you were dead in your sins. God made you alive. He satisfied his holiness by pouring out his wrath on Jesus and his perfect life and sacrificial death and then gave you life so that you could look away from yourself finally so that you could finally say no to the sin that enslaved you and look in faith and trust and love to Jesus. He caused you to be born again through Jesus' work on the cross if you're a Christian. And by the way, if you're not a Christian this morning and you're realizing it, the only thing you need to do is look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Don't wait for me to give you a prayer to recite or a form to fill out. Right now, look away from, look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Even as I'm speaking, look away. If your heart is pounding and you're hearing this message, I believe that is wonderful evidence that God is giving you the very thing that he requires of you, which is faith. So turn away from yourself and turn to Christ. Realize that you can bring nothing to the table to make yourself right with a holy and righteous, wonderful God and look to Jesus who has done it all. But that's not even the point I was trying to make out of this passage. (laughs) Praise God for the Bible. And then once he's done all that, he keeps us. He saves us, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Friends, If you have trusted in Christ and he has made you alive by his grace and he's given you faith and he's given you repentance, stand sure on this, friends, not because it's what Christians have just doctrinally believed or it's a denominational stance, but because the Bible says that when God makes you a Christian, he keeps you a Christian no matter what this life may bring. Hallelujah. And I think the clearest expression of this truth we find even in our text from Romans 8 that we looked at just a moment ago, a couple weeks ago, that this idea of God keeping his people is part, it's a consequence of that unbroken chain of Romans 8, 29 and 30. Let me read it again. For those whom he foreknew, remember we looked at that word, it just means foreloved. He also predestined, he determined your future to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, called, he made your ears hear the gospel. And those whom he called, he also justified. So he poured out his wrath on Jesus rather than you and exonerated you. He cleared you of your guilt and rebellion against him because he punished Jesus and because Jesus is fully God and fully man and he's a perfect man. He is able to satisfy God's wrath against all wickedness and sin. And those whom he justified, made his children, he also glorified. So it is, it is etched in heaven that that is true of you. The future is true of you now. So as a wonderful, beautiful consequence, you are in the middle of justified and glorified. You're in that unbreakable chain and nothing can snatch you from God's hand. Friends, this is a container that is airtight. This is water resistant. It could go down to the deepest depth and not a drop would get in it. It is airtight, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So that's the truth of Romans 8, 35 through 39. If you are trusting in Christ, 
And he has wrought this salvation in you by his grace. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. So a few objections to this. Let's look deeply at this truth and understand why some people may disagree with this. One objection occasionally arises that believing this truth, that Christians are secure in God through Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit until the end, is that it sort of produces or gives license to sinful living. That people can say, oh, well, you know, once saved, always saved. And I think that is a very unhelpful phrase. I think that sort of false assurance that churches often slap on people to sort of make them think that they're okay with God just because they raised their hand at an altar call or, you know, filled out a form at VBS or whatever. I think that's very unhelpful, friends. That's why you notice we don't just slap, you know, false assurance on people just because they repeat a prayer. I think those things can be wonderful and used by God as a means in the process to draw somebody to faith. But friends, you know you're a Christian not because you recited a prayer 20 years ago or even because you're a member of this church. But you know you're a Christian because you have turned from your idols, turned from your sin, and you are trusting in Christ, and you, you see the evidence, the fruit in your life of trusting in Christ. It doesn't mean that we're sinless or perfect. It means that we know we are in Christ by the fruit, by the, by the love, by the ever-increasing obedience in our lives for God and His way. Certainly, in, modern, in our church, in our church culture today, there is such a thing as false assurance. And Jesus, in fact, warns against it even in the Bible in Matthew chapter 7. There at the end of Matthew chapter 7, we won't read it, but verses 21 through 23, Jesus warns against these people that have done all of these great things in, in Jesus' name, but then they come to him at the end and they say, Lord, Lord, we're, we're here now. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. In other words, they were just just doing work for Jesus, but they hadn't truly trusted in Christ. If this was the case for those Jesus was talking about, then certainly it can be the case for, for people in our culture, in our time today. And we live in a culture that is full of dealing out false assurance. And friends, listen, I'm not beating you up on this. I'm beating pastors up on this because this, I think this comes because of the, the insecurity and even the ego of pastors. We just want so desperately to go to our silly little meetings and tell our little pastor friends how many people we're running. Whatever the stink that means. How many you're running, brother? That's like, how important, how much attention should I pay to you because how many people are coming to your church? And so we just want, we just want people to come because as Americans, don't we just judge success by how big things are and how many people come? And so if I have a lot of people coming, well, then I must be successful. And so we are so quick to just dole out false assurance to people. And we're not a lot of times in our nation and in our church culture, good shepherds where, did you notice we have a membership class? We want to sit down with you. We want to explain what we believe about the gospel and the Bible to you. And if you become a Christian, it's like we're giving you our, our validation that we think that you're truly trusting in Christ. We're giving you our assurance that we think you're a Christian. And we're not just going to hand that out. We want to sit down with you and hear about how you came to Christ and if you're truly trusting in Christ because we want to be good caretakers of your soul. So certainly that's a problem in our 
culture. And we want to do, as a local church and as leaders of this church, we want to fight against that and care wisely and gently for people's souls to make sure that they truly understand whether or not they are trusting in Christ. So how do you know whether or not you're truly a Christian, whether you're truly trusting in Christ? I think a, a wonderful explanation of this, and I'm going to throw the people in the booth back up there uh, because I didn't have this verse in the little sheet that I gave them, but they'll adjust, and you will too, and everything will be fine. First Thessalonians, thank you, brother. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes this to the Thessalonians about how he knew that they were truly trusting in Christ. Verse 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full full conviction. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, For they themselves report, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And then he gives a description of their lives once they received the gospel. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Did you notice that little sentence there about Paul's description of what it means to be a Christian? You turned to God away from your idols. And friends, you know that when he says idols, he's not talking about little gold statues of fat guys, right? He's talking about these things in our hearts that we find our we find our, our, like our comfort in, that we make ourselves think that we're okay because we're, we're trusting in this thing, whether it's a status or, or finances or your looks or some gift or ability. Those things can be wonderful gifts from God, but when we're trusting in those things, they become an idol that we serve and draw us away from God. And Paul is saying, I know that you're a Christian, not because you raised your hand, not because you went through a membership class, because I can see the evidence in your life that you've turned away from that false God and you've turned in faith to the true God and it's producing something in your life. So yes, wrongly believing this truth can give a license to sinful living, but rightly believing this truth anchors us to this reality that we are His. Paul gives us this beautiful description in Romans chapter 6. I won't take time to read it, but that would be a wonderful chapter for you to read this afternoon. That he says that because Christ has died for you and you're now in Christ, that means that you now, as a Christian, are empowered by the gospel to consider yourself dead to the sin that drug you away and now alive to God. So understanding this security should produce in us a confidence that propels us to live for God and not stay in our sins. Friends, to be a Christian is not just to add faith to your life or some way to live, but to be a Christian is to be radically changed, to be born again, to turn away from your old life and to turn in faith to Christ. Does this mean again that we are perfect? Absolutely not. Follow me around. I, oh my gosh. I mean, as I approach the end of the week, I, I mean, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, as I examine my own heart, I mean, it's like almost every week, on a weekly basis, I'm about to call Reynolds or Doug or Will or Wayne and say, guys, I am such a wretch, I can't preach this Sunday, fill in for me. Because I am still, like every other Christian, 
on this road to becoming more like Jesus. And friends, this is why God gives us each other. He gives us the local church so that we can take God's side against our remaining sin rather than taking sin's side against God. That's that beautiful quote that I read from William Arnaud, British theologian and pastor back in the 1800s. Let's put it up on the screen. This is what William Arnaud said. Listen to these words. They're very helpful, especially if you're a Christian and you're fighting against some remaining sin in your life. He says, The difference between an unconverted and converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one, meaning the unconverted man, takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, while the other takes part with a reconciled God against his own sins. Friends, this is the Christian life. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. And because God has done this, because he's made your future state so certain that he can speak of it in past tense, you now can stand with God against your remaining sin to be conformed into the image of Christ in ever-increasing joy. And so, I don't think that that objection holds any water. I think when rightly understood, this causes us to, to go towards God not stay where we are. One more objection before we wrap it up with a few applications. Some people object about passages in the Bible that seem to warn that a Christian can lose their salvation. So let me read one in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Let's read Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. It's up on the screen. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is a worthless It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so, on the surface, it sounds like maybe the writer of Hebrews is speaking about Christians. He uses these words, enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And then he says, they have fallen away. So we might say, okay, Brad, well, how does this verse square with this huge mountain of verses, which we could have read many more, that that seem to clearly say that once you become a true Christian, that you will endure to the end. But here in Hebrews 6, it says that maybe they can fall away. Well, I think if we look at this closely, we will realize that the writer of Hebrews, I think, is not talking about a person who has truly become a Christian. There are people that are kind of on the edges. There are people that maybe seem to give an indication that they're a Christian for a while, But then they prove themselves to be like that soil in the parable of the sower in Mark 4 where it says that there's these four types of soil. Soil number one, the the seed of the gospel is scattered and the first type of seed falls on on the path there and it's just snatched up immediately by Satan, by a bird. Soil number 
two is, is like it's on a rocky path, you know, and it takes root for a little while, springs up with some sort of immediate joy, you know, seems like they're all on fire for God, but then the tribulations and trials and persecutions come, and it withers and dies, and it was never truly good soil. And then soil number three is, is, is soil, it's a seed that falls on like a thorny patch of ground, and again, it takes root for a little while, but then the, the deceitfulness and the desire for the world and its pleasures chokes out that initial root and it dies. And then there's the fourth type of soil, which is the good soil, which is the Christian, that it takes root in their life and although it will endure great difficulty, it bears some fruit of following Christ. And I think what the writer of Hebrews has in view here in these people that are kind of on the edge of the Christian community, they're enlightened, they're, they're enjoying the blessings of hearing of hearing the Bible taught. They're enjoying the blessings of being in community. They're sharing in that sort of communal atmosphere of the church. They're, they're tasting some of the goodness of God's word, but they're like that soil, that rocky soil or that thorny soil, and they, they're, they're never truly trusting in Christ. They're just on the edge. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And I think also it's very possible that God uses these warnings as a way to preserve his people. So as Christians, we need to read these verses in Hebrews, these warning passages all throughout the scripture, and don't think, ah, they don't apply to me because I'm a Christian. I think we need to read those and let God use those to work growth and security in us. Let me give you an example. Imagine, I think I've given you this illustration before. Imagine if I lived on the edge of the interstate, and Interstate 185 was like opened up to my front door and I had just a little patch of grass and my boys were out kicking the ball around in the front yard. And I said to them, boys, do not go near the edge of the yard. Don't get near the freeway because if you kick the ball onto the freeway, a truck will come down, barreling down, going 85 miles an hour and you will get run over and you will surely die. So do not get close to the freeway. And then I sit on the porch, and I read the sports page, and I drink my sweet tea. And for a while, they obey me, but after a while, they start inching forward towards the edge of the lawn, and they're getting close, and I see a huge semi-truck barreling down, going 85 miles an hour. And I see that one of them kicks the ball out into the road, and one of them's about to chase. What will I do if I'm a good father? I will jump up off my porch and I will grab that little joker by the scruff of his neck and rescue him from certain doom, put him back on the safe ground, have a little talk with him, pat him on the behind and say, now be good, Johnny, right? That's what I think God does to us with these warning passages. He says, don't get close to it. And one of the ways... God uses to preserve us is by us feeling the force of the whole counsel of God's word to be a means by which he preserves us. Not that God would ever let us finally and fully be run over by that truck of sin, but God is using his word, his whole word, to be his means of preserving grace in the life of a Christian. And if need be, he will intervene and send grace and people and pastors and friends and Whatever, your way to grab you before you finally and fully ruin yourself for his glory and your safety. So I end with four 
quick points of application. Because here's the deal, friends. I think a lot of you probably agree with this. Some of you don't. And if you want to talk more fully about this, because there's so much more we can say, please, let's talk. Let's, let's email. Let's go to lunch. Let's have coffee. Let's, let's, let's look at this truth. Me or any of the other pastors would love to just sit down and talk with you about this truth. But here's my fear. As Bible Belt conservative Christians that most of us probably already believe this truth, is that it can sort of dead end on us. And it can be kind of like, you know, it just, it just ends in a little cul-de-sac. Okay, we believe that... Once God makes you a Christian, you will stay a Christian. And it can actually just sort of dead end on us. But this truth was never meant to just sort of lay dormant in a sort of sinkhole of our hearts. But God has given us this truth. Why? Why has he written these words through the Apostle Paul and the other Bible writers to make us certain of our, of our salvation? Because he, he wants it to flow through us and to produce confidence in us for his glory and our joy in his mission. So application number one, understanding this truth frees us from idolatry and the fear of death. What did Paul say? He said, we are being killed all the day long. Christians in a few years after they read this letter are going to be burned on the streets of Rome. And friends, this isn't a 2,000 year ago problem. This is a now problem. There are Christians in Iraq and other parts of the world that are being beheaded and persecuted. Horrible things going on. And this truth, this truth can't just be true for southern Christians in the Bible Belt. It must hold up everywhere to every Christian all across time or it means nothing at all. And so Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is wanting them to have steel in their spine to remind them that this life, these 80 or 90 years is not all there is to it. And understanding the fact that death is just the entrance into eternal life, it's not the end of life, frees us from the idolatry of clinging too, too tightly to this life and this earth and frees us from the fear of death. Secondly, it empowers our sanctification. I've used that word a few times. What does sanctification mean? It means for us to grow in Christ, to fight against our remaining sin after we've become a Christian. This truth, when rightly understood, doesn't propel us into spiritual laziness or sinfulness, but it should propel us into effort and striving for godliness. Imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine a little boy who's just learning how to play the violin. And then just imagine if, if, if an angel came down and just gave him a vision of 20 years in the future when he would be this amazing violinist that would play in the greatest, you know, violin venue in the world. I don't even have the word. What's the orchestra, I guess, or whatever. Right? And that little kid who was having trouble practicing, who was having trouble finding the motivation to get up and practice every day, gets a picture of what he will be. And the angel says to him, little boy, this is what is sure and certain in your life. Now, go after it, boy. Go after it. Pick up that instrument and practice and get there. Friends, that picture of the future won't produce laziness in that little boy. It will produce a sort of liberty in him to free himself to go after that thing because he knows it's there for him. So this truth empowers our fight against sin because I know, friends, that if God saved me by his grace, he will and in fact guarantees that he will bring me safely home. 
Now, don't give it to me if you're just going to give it to me like that. <laughs> Third, I'm just kidding. Thank you. Praise God. I'm glad you were encouraged. Point number three. Friends, this compels us. Application number three. This should compel us to love one another more. Friends, who can live this way? Come on, who can, who can, who can do this on their own? Who can, be, who can remember this? Now, I can't, man, I, oh my gosh, I need other Christians. We need the local church. Your name needs to be known. You need to have shepherds that are responsible for you. You need to sit in front of somebody and explain the gospel and be assured that you understand it well. You need to not be on the fringes of this community. You need to find a Bible-believing church and give your life to it. You need to serve it, and you need to submit your life to it so that people have authority in your life, so that when you're not there, they can wonder about where you are, and they can call you and check in on you because don't think, friends, that you've got this life figured out and that you can live this life just, just on your own terms. No, we need each other. Listen to these words in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 about how a local church should live together in, in earnest, sincere, humble accountability. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11, therefore, he says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Listen to this now. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, verse 14, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Friends, this is not written just to the elders and pastors of the church at Thessalonica. He's writing this to all of the Christians. He's saying, all of you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So all of us have this collective responsibility to link arms together because this life is rough and this world is broken and we need each other to, to be in life together and say, come on, man, let's do it. Let's get to the end together. God has guaranteed it, but he's given us each other as a means to ensure that we will get there. So come on, man. Come on, let's do it together. We are compelled when we understand this truth to love one another more. So much more I could say about this, but I'm getting long, so let me wrap it up with point number four of the application of understanding the security of believers in Christ is that this produces in us, it fuels a missionary zeal. When we don't care about our life, when we know that life is eternity forever with Christ, and when we fight together to realize that, it unclenches our fist from this world, and we are propelled to give our lives away from the go- for the gospel, whether that's on the mercy ship or whether that's locally, starting other churches or just being involved in ministry in this town. Listen to what Paul says as he's getting ready for the end of his life to be martyred in Rome. He says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, now... From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, this is Paul, to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I don't care who it was, I was preaching the gospel to him. Verse 22, And now... Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. He's going to trial where he eventually will be martyred. 
I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisoned and afflictions, imprisonment and afflictions await me. So the only thing the Holy Spirit is making sure to me is that it's going to be rough. Right, that's what's going to happen for me. Verse 24, listen to this. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So what Paul is saying is that this truth of his future and eternity and certain glorification with Jesus released him to care anything about these 80 years. He says, I do not count my life as precious to myself because life is Christ forever. So if I lose this one, it really wasn't mine to lose in the first place. And I'm going to give it away to God for whatever he deems for his glory and my joy. Friends, that doesn't mean that every person in this room is going to be a missionary to the far corners of the earth right now are in a dark country where there are no Christians in the city that they are with millions of people where a couple from this church has given their lives to serve the needs of the gospel there. Maybe that means that for you. Or maybe it just means that you are a Christian that doesn't just let truth and Bible and blessings sort of stack up like a cesspool in your heart, but you are empowered to flee from idolatry and the fear of death. And you are empowered to fight sin in your life. And you're empowered to love other Christians more deeply and you're empowered to give your life away for the proclamation of the gospel to our neighbors and the nations for the glory of God. And this is what the Holy Spirit through Paul wants us to know. Oh love that will not let me go I rest my weary soul in thee. We sang it now let's believe it and stand on it for the glory of God. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, uh, I pray that you would take my feeble words and use them for your glory. I know the hour is late, but I pray that you'd give us clarity here in these words. For Christians in this room, they're fighting sin and selfishness and laziness ignite a fire underneath us of sovereign grace so that we would get outside of ourselves because we are secure in you. And for people in this room who came in unbelieving, not trusting in Christ, I pray the beauty of your fatherhood and the glory of your preserving grace has just become so beautiful to them. The security of being in Christ has become so beautiful to them that they would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus. That they would stop trusting in themselves and would trust in Jesus finally. And what he did on the cross to make them right with you. So God, help us see this and remember this. In Jesus' name, amen.